0: Singing about being prone to wander um, gosh, I love that hymn and uh, there's so much in it that just resonates with my heart and one of the ways that I am prone to wander is I I love to see myself as important and a lot of you lovely people like to make me feel important and so one of the ways I combat that is I, I try to give my job's away around here. And uh, one of the things I do an awful lot is I teach the Bible, and and so I'm giving that away this morning. Um, Our friends at Anthem Church have graciously allowed us to borrow Pastor Josh Borges uh, to come share the word of God with us this morning. So um, just uh, welcome Josh as he comes up to speak. Good morning, Revelation Church guys doing well? Yeah, it's really good to be with you, um, recognizing just that God's church is so much bigger than just one denomination or one little particular gathering. But uh, in Christ, we are all part of his kingdom. So it's, it's, it's an honor to be here uh, with my friends. Uh, Zach did kind of steal my opening. No, I'm just joking <laughs> when he went on about the heart. Um, if I were to ask you a question, what motivates you? What like what truly? If you guys were bold enough to kind of jump out and say something, probably the first remarks would be something similar to "oh, uh, money brownies." But, you know, you'd kind of get kind of a maybe a flippant answer. But but if I really begin to push the issue deep down inside, what what really motivates you on the deepest heart of hearts level? Kind of what we sing. Uh, my heart wanders. This idea that we sometimes don't recognize it, but deep down inside, what really, what is going on? And so if you begin to look at that idea, what motivates a person? Begin to open up your browser and type up type motivation, how to be motivated. You're going to get a whole lot of answers, kind of that fall into two categories. Kind of one would be uh, an extrinsic, kind of the outward view of what motivates you, kind of rewards or a compelling thing, a, a forced issue, or the intrinsic, which is what happens on the inside. And that's more so what the question I'm asking. Deep down at the motivational level, why do we do the things that we do? Now, we, we, can, we can make a huge list of sometimes it's self-worth, it's curiosity, There's a whole list of things that we could draw from, and if we look to outside resources, there's no shortage of material out there that would tell us something. How to motivate others, how to be self-motivated. If you go to a bookstore, if they still have those, there's huge sections, self-help, self-motivation, all kind of covering the same topic, but... The fascinating part is, while some of it's true and good, I'm neither affirming or condemning that, is it largely focuses on the exterior results, what you do, what, what you've done. And I think that's kind of the heart of this passage here, is when we begin to just focus on the, the outward results of what happens, we begin to neglect the more inner thing, this inner, deeper truth of what is really going on. To, to kind of to frame it, how many of us maybe focus a little more on what we're going to wear and how we're going to get here today than actually preparing our hearts to what's really happening here, right? Now, that is not to be condemnation, but that's just to highlight we generally forget that there's this internal being, this, this internal self at our truest point where worship exists, where life exists, that from out of that flows everything else. And so we naturally just look on the outward things. And I think that's one of the key things that's happening here. So in verse 15, we see that the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So the Pharisees and scribes, were familiar with who they are, if you've been at any time here at Revelation. But a couple key points is they're from Jerusalem, Meaning this, that these are the who's who of the religious crowd. See, up to this point, Jesus has been primarily doing most of his ministry in Galilee. Galilee's not a place of prominence, not necessarily a place of affluence. But this, in, in our today's culture, this would be the people who are this delegation sent to find out who Jesus is. This is kind of the way i putting it of these people, these lawyers, these studiers of the law, these priests... They're kind of the Oxford and Cambridge where they view Jesus as kind of the maybe a high school graduate from some podunk podunk town. That's kind of how they're approaching this. There's some weight to these people and who they come. And they come to challenge Jesus. And they say this in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So here's the challenge. Why don't they follow the tradition of the elders? So what, what is that? We have an issue, the tradition of the elders. So the tradition of the elders isn't from the Holy Scriptures or from the Bible, as we would call it, but the tradition of the elders is an oral law, an oral tradition, and it's been passed down from generation to generation, and later on... Much after the time of Jesus, around maybe 200 AD, these things were written into a text. They were kind of gathered together and and published that way. Um, But what happened, how this came about, is we had the students of the law. They begin to get together, and they begin to explore all the ways you could apply God's word. How, How should we respond to it? When we have the law how should we react to it? How should it be applied in certain situations? And the idea was this, if the law is one thing, and we're told not to do it, is it possible to build a buffer or a safety zone around this law? So if if, if committing an infraction against the law was similar to walking off a cliff, they would begin to build this buffer. Hey, if we have this wall here, way back and add these extra rules, then there's no way. If we do not break this tradition here, there's no way we're actually going to break the actual commandment. And they did this to show their holiness. They, they understood that they were to be this holy people, people set apart. So original intent might have been good. It wasn't a, a devious attempt to do away with God's word, but they're trying to add something to it. Now, now Jesus wasn't necessarily opposed to this traditional law this law of tradition some things he even upheld such as prayer before meals something that we do except i think in the actual tradition is prayer after meals and the only time jesus seemed to object to this is when it contradicted god's word so we can see their their offense is the tradition. So you have these two authorities. We have God's word, which we follow, and we have the tradition of men or the tradition of the elders. And they're offended because um, it had to do with cleanliness. It violated a certain aspect of their law. They weren't washing their hands. Now, this isn't about hygiene. About That's really disgusting. You guys don't wash your dirty hands before you eat. That's not what's happening here. But it is has to do with rituals based on ceremonial cleansing. Probably uh, the idea that when they would do sacrifices, temple sacrifices, this would be out of Exodus, that they'd wash their hands and feet for these sacrifices. But they took this, this law that was commanded in God's word, and they began to extend it out and build a wall around it and say, hey, this extends to all times and all places for all things, especially eating. So there's this idea of defilement. They were made unclean, similar to what was, should have taken place at the temple, just at a simple meal. And Jesus answers him this. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Verse 3. So Jesus doesn't directly answer them, but he, he asks a question. Kind of typical Jesus. Does he ever answer directly? He kind of seems to answer with questions. Why do you break God's word to uphold your tradition? That's the point. So, so the point of his offense where he says you're wrong is you begin to take this tradition that's man's and begin to elevate it above God's word. And he he reiterates this in verses 3 and even in verse 6, he comes back to it that the word of God has this authority. The tradition doesn't have anything more to offer. It's a lesser thing that you've taken and you've made a bigger thing. And when you begin to substitute man's teachings for God's word, you have a big problem. Why is that? We, we have scripture um, that teaches us the purpose of God's words. Why does it have the authority? Why, when we gather, do we stick with God's word? Is that important? Yeah, it's very important. Otherwise, we begin to teach things about God's word, and we begin to hold it on the same level that has the same authority as God's word. And that will lead us to all kinds of places that we do not want to be. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This idea that, that Scripture itself is breathed, God-inspired. Yes, it was written by a man, but it was Influenced under the direction of the Holy Spirit as if it was spoken by God himself. So the weight and authority actually rests with God. And we can't adopt something, no matter how good it seems, these, these practices, some of them, they're good, in place of God's word. There can't exist any rival Parallels to God's word, that, that that will lead us to things of idolatry. So God's word has this final authority, and he begins to expose their hypocrisy. For God commanded this honor your father and your other honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles your father or mother must surely die. That's the passage we're teaching in the children's ministry, if you guys are wondering. <laughs> yeah. What a harsh statement, right? God throws out this law. He challenges them with a, a law from God's word. Really, you, you're concerned about washing hands, but, but here's a law. God's word says this, honor your father and mother, this relational law. And he takes that very serious. This comes from Exodus, Honor your father and mother. Even when you no longer live with them, you are to honor them. And the penalty is pretty stiff. See, God takes these relational commands very seriously. But they begin to take this, and they begin to twist it and pervert it. This is probably one of many things that Jesus could have pointed to, but he he uses this. Here's an example. This is what God's word says, but this is what you do. This is how you manipulate it to your own gain. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother... What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of tradition, you have made void the word of God. So what was happening in this day is they had this practice called korban, meaning devoted to God. And so they would... would use their assets and their belongings where they could actually dedicate them to the temple or to the work of God that were only payable on death. So when you would die, then all those things would be transferred to the temple or to God's work. And they could say, hey, this is devoted to God. So when anything arose within the family, if the parents had needs, they'd say, I'm sorry, I'd like to help you, but these things are devoted to God. I'm a good person. They're, they're devoted to God. And, and in that society, that largely would have been viewed as a positive thing. You know, your mother comes to your son, you are be like, oh, he's so holy. He devotes all his things to, to the temple. That's a good person. But the motivation, what are we getting at? The heart issues. See, during the time that they still own these things, they could use them for their own personal gain and use. They neglect one thing where they should have caught the heart aspect of God's law and begin to take care of the immediate need. But instead, they'd say, I don't want to use my money. I need a good, holy excuse to use things for my own gain. And so typical of mankind would begin to, to come up with ways and reasons and kind of show that, oh, the, my motivations aren't really that bad. I'm, I need to justify it this way. And so they came up with a system that goes, violates God's word to kind of uphold a tradition. It makes them look holy. It makes them look more spiritual. And their, their hypocrisy is exposed. You invalidate God's word for the sake of your tradition. Begin to lessen the authority because you have this tradition that you've held above. Verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. So hypocrisy, kind of playing the game, looking the part, the outward exterior things were correct and they were in order but on the inside was where the real problem is. And on the inside is where Jesus seems to point them to. That's the problem. Your worship is vain. It's meaning it's fruitless. It's completely pointless. Could you imagine going through life and everything that we did here, if Jesus were to show up and say, hey, it's completely pointless. Because inside your heart, you're, you're, you're not you have a different motivation. Something is off, something is wrong, something has wondered. When you elevate man's teaching to the level of God's authority, you have a problem because human-centric teaching and philosophies kind of lend and lead to human-centric teaching and worship, If we take truth and these philosophies and principles and begin to elevate them above what God says is true and what brings worship and honor to God, we'll find ourselves worshiping ourselves. We become at the heart and the core of religion. Our preference has precedence over God's word and what he commands So when you have this tradition, this kind of idea of, of uh man's teaching, kind of what we call maybe religion, largely focused on the exterior. Religion, how how we use God either for a sense of control, or maybe we use God to get something. I, I follow this God because he gains me favorable health. He promotes me at work. Or sometimes like we, we follow God or religion, vain religion would be to appease God. We think that there's a God who will bring judgment and when we just worship him, he's appeased. But those are, those are vain pursuits. And so when we take this false religion and then compare it to God's word, this is the whole argument here, Right? What you hold and what you want to worship, how you want to worship versus what God says, how he should be approached, what he's mandated, we have a worship problem. Whenever we put man's philosophies against God, we will always arrive at a worship problem because God wants our hearts, not our religious actions. Even when they're good, he's looking at something much deeper inside, not just what we do that's right on the outside. Now, we can look at the Pharisees and and look down on them and be like, oh yeah, this, this is the typical thing we read in all the Gospels. Look at these people over and over again. Wrong heart motivations, they're manipulating, they're prideful, go down the list. But in truth, sometimes that's us. If we're like... Straight up, honest that can be our tendency, especially if you are familiar with Christianity in general. The more you become familiar with something, the easier it is to just kind of follow and wander through the streams of life doing what you've always done, not really tending what's on the inside. So, we have to be careful before we begin to point at people and be like, Hey, you're a hypocrite because you. You're, you're playing a false game. You do all these things on the outside, but inside you're messed up. It's easy to, to notice people who are hypocritical, right? Super easy. Out of the people in the room, I can probably begin to point out, I know what your problem is. Let me, let me get a pencil and write you down a list, right? That's super easy to do. But then if I was to turn that on me inwardly, that's a whole other topic, right? I'd be like, well, I mean, I do those things because this, this, and this. That's kind of just naturally how we're bent, and we know that, but sometimes we just don't keep that on the forefront of our minds. So that's going to lead us to this question. From the outward, what traditions do we hold above or equal to God's word? And this might take some time or maybe some thought, like, but really think about it. Because probably we're somewhat blind to it. The reality is that the things that we've inserted, or that we do—certain um, rituals, certain religious rituals, maybe foods or holidays we participate in, maybe the political system we follow, how we do things—like we all have systems and preferences. What things are of our own proclivities and our own preference and do we begin to put those on other people or are we just honest to say hey actually God's word has the authority there and and sometimes these these parameters these walls that we set up are 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 good intents they, they keep us on the path they are disciplines that are that are that are really good but Are those practices actually what makes us holy? Is that what leads us to the place we need to be for spiritual growth? If we begin to give them too much weight and affection, yeah, they probably are. They will lead us astray. We'll begin to worship those things versus actually worshiping God. Because remember, what we can do can look really great on the outside. It can be the right thing to do. It could be a good thing that we all agree, but the truth is, in our acts of worship, how we live life, if our heart is not in it, it's mere words, just kind of lip service. And sometimes as humans, we just naturally go in and out of that. I'm convinced, at least in my personal life, there's never one time where I have totally pure heart motives. I, I don't understand what happens on the inside. But if we're kind of blind to it and just saying, hey, because I do these things, everything on the inside is fine and good. It's not the case. It's easy to affirm the right doctrines, the right statements, but honestly, what we need to be saying is, God, search me. As a psalmist 139 says, search me, know me, try me are on the right path, but as we sing, "Hey, our hearts do wander." Are we open to that, are, or are we, is it easier to just point your finger at the people who obviously are not following correctly? So it kind of leads us to this idea: if we, if it's possible that we can honor God with our lips, our, our what we say and our actions, but our hearts are not in it. They're far from God. And, and we can have fruitless, vain, pointless worship of God. How do we worship God from the heart? How, how do we know? We kind of have to ask that question. How, how do we truly, authentically worship God from our heart? Well, first off, if you are a believer, if you've been redeemed, if you are a follower of Jesus, You have passed from death to life. What's on the inside that once was dead has been made alive. There should be something different on the inside. God, by grace through faith, by simply believing in the work of Jesus, has taken a heart of stone and has inserted a heart of flesh. So something different should exist in our lives. Jesus has done this work. He's paid the debt that we couldn't pay. So us trying to show ourselves as worthy to pay these steps would be a vain religious pursuit, is it not? But when we hold to the fact that, hey, I have been saved, I have been redeemed, there is life in me, we start at a different point. The Holy Spirit now lives in us and resides in us. Jesus said this, Those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. So once our heart has been made alive, how do we worship? Jesus said this, you must worship in spirit. You must worship in truth. So let's break that down. In truth would be according to what God has revealed, how we should approach him. Where do we find that, church? Where? Somebody shout it out. In the Word, yeah. It's not our ideas. It's not our traditions. We have to hold solidly to what this says and not elevate anything else above that. How do we know the right way? How do we know what God has revealed about himself unless we know this, unless we stay here? This is our course. That is the truth. But in spirit, if we've been made alive How do we worship in spirit? I I think there's an idea. Out of Deuteronomy, and Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment of all, that you're to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So basically, heart, mind, and soul are a total being, mind, emotions, will, to be tied into worship. All of that would be viewed as authentic worship. So when we have truth, approached with all we are, not just external. Yes, that does matter. Because as we'll see as we move on, what's on the inside eventually comes out. It just does. It should come out. And kind of wrestling through this, this is a hard question. How do I know my worship's authentic? And I understand God's word. I know it's true, but sometimes there seems to be a disconnect between what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. But reminded how Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13 lays out this premise that everything has to be done in love. And he runs down this huge list of things. I can give my body to be burned at the stake, I can give all my wealth away, I can speak in tongues. It can be eloquent. I can do all these right things, but at the core, if I don't have love, what is it? It's like this banging gong, a clanging cymbal. It, it kind of is just completely fruitless. And part of that, I think it takes us remembering to focus on what's going on it, going on, on the inside. What is our motivation Now, we could leverage this as a past, being, hey, you don't really know what's going on inside anyone's heart. I don't truly know what's going on in any of your hearts. I can only judge what maybe comes out. We can also use that to say, well, sorry, you can't judge the way I externally worship because of what happens on the inside. You don't know my heart. But... God's word and truth informs us of how we should live, does it not? It speaks of patience and kindness and generosity and worship and how we're to use our bodies in worship and in song. Are we yielded to that? Because that should be what is coming out. As God's word, as an authority, and as a king, Jesus, if we're part of his kingdom... Are we holding our hearts from that? Are we just in name only a part of his kingdom? Does he rule and reign in, in total in our whole lives? Not just in this church, but does he truly reign in every aspect of our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts? Because the things that come out of us show us what is in our hearts. And then those are the things that defile us. Not the external things. And, and, and next week you'll get more into that. We have to remember that following Jesus just isn't about checking boxes or doing religious duties, even though those things could be right, it's a higher calling than that. It's a relational component. Because when we just begin to reduce it down to, I do this for God, it becomes an exchange of something that just isn't healthy and will lead us to things in places we don't want to be that you'll look back over the years and be like, do I truly know God? And like with relationship, anything. Think of any relationship you have here, whether it be a wife or a close friend or a spouse or, or anything Relationships take work. If you begin to approach any of those relationships, sometimes the way we can approach religion, well, check that box, came in, say hello, say I love you, buy flowers, check. How healthy would that be? Yeah, it just wouldn't be. It would just be this really weird exchange. And that's similar to God. It's got to go past that. And it's, and it's really hard to define. How do you have a relationship with this God that is immaterial, that we can't see, we can't touch, we can't feel? We sometimes don't even have a direct correspondence verbally with. And that's sometimes really hard. But when we begin to dig into God's Word, and it be, it will, it's promised to be that it's alive, and it will speak to us and grow us and teach us about this God, and we actively begin to cultivate what's on the inside Out of that will flow a heart of worship and a heart of authentic worship. So it's really easy to focus on the outward service to God. And some of that's good. That's a part of it. There's disciplines and things we should. But don't forget and don't neglect the inward service. So I'm going to leave you with that. That's something to think we can probably easily identify the things that maybe we do or that we've added to that just do not have the same level of authority as God's word. But do we, do we take time to focus on the inside, to to allow God's work to actually take place on what's on the inside? And that's, that's, that's hard because the, the world we live in largely focuses on everything external. We're kind of just Bent that way, it seems like. Everything we do, it's just like, we do this because somebody thinks that. And that's, that's the hard part. But let us not be a people, a church who, uh, that's all we are, a fake facade, where when you get to the internal, there's just nothing. We're, we don't want to be found wanting. We don't want to be, find, be found lacking. So, as we close... I can pose the questions, but all these things have to kind of be taken and internalized by you guys. And it's easy to to move on. Like, yep, God showed me the things and just kind of move on with your heart. But these things, I think, are are disciplines you just have to ask yourself continually. If we want to have authentic worship, if we want Jesus truly living in us and flowing out of us into our families, into our community, into our workplaces, we have to take time to, to... to cultivate what's in on the inside. So as, as we close and as we sing, we're gonna take communion. Remember, we find forgiveness when we repent. There's something that needs to be repented of or confessed. We can do that. We have a God who freely forgives us. There's things that God can equip and instill in us, but it takes us to stop and say, God, just search me. Know what's on the inside. I, I, I can't hide it. I can hide it from everyone in this room, but truly recognizing that you cannot hide things from God. So when you are ready, you can come and we can partake of the elements. Remember that we have confidence. We, we have been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. We have been given that new heart. We have what it takes but we still have work to do. Still that sanctification process of becoming more like Jesus. So that's just as a warning as a church. Let's not play church. Let's not play religion, but ask Jesus to do a work in your heart. Ask him to reveal things that you hold too closely compared to his word. Would you guys pray with me? God, we, we recognize that we have hearts that wander at any given moment, Lord. Sometimes we, we elevate things above your word. God, forgive us when we do that. God, but we, we thank you that we have a confidence that we can come before you and come before you boldly. that your grace is there, that your spirit is alive and active in us. So God, may we not hold areas back, but as being part of your kingdom, as being followers of Jesus, that we would yield over just the areas that we try to control. God, we thank you just for loving us and, and understanding and being patient with us. God, I just pray for uh, this church. Uh, may these people grow, grow deeper in your knowledge and understanding of you and your grace. Use them to impact this community where they sit. And God, we thank you and praise you and that's in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.